God, why do you let bad things happen to me? Now, if you think that's kind of a new question to be asking, guess again. Check out this verse from the book of Ecclesiastes from the wise King Solomon. It reads like this, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. In other words, Solomon said, life just isn't fair. Sometimes the good people end up suffering and the bad people end up prospering. <clears throat> now, the truth is, everybody goes through tough times. Sometimes innocent people suffer because of the bad or the sinful choices of others. A person chooses to drink to the excess, causes an accident on the road, and an innocent person dies. A suicide bomber gets on a loaded bus and detonates the bomb, and dozens of innocent people die for a wicked choice. Now, there is nothing just or fair about that. Sometimes the innocent suffer at the hands of unrighteous people. Sometimes we complain to God about the suffering that we're going through, and really our suffering is from our own choices. Choose to lie or to defraud, and it will eventually come back to haunt you. Choose to be unfaithful to your spouse, and at best your relationship with your spouse will be forever changed, and more likely it'll destroy your home and family. Ignore getting help for an addiction, and it'll consume you. You see, sometimes we suffer at our own hands. The own poor, sinful choices that we make cause us our pain. Sometimes we suffer for our faith. Now, we don't suffer physically, but there is a growing cultural, social, and emotional attack level at those who live by faith in this world. That's not fair either, but that really shouldn't surprise us. As a matter of fact, when Peter writes to the early church about that, he says, you know, if, if you follow Jesus, what do you expect to happen? You know, they persecuted him. They're, you know, they're going to be tough on you too. And then not only says, don't be surprised. He said, but count it, count it something good. We don't usually look at suffering in that light. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, this is what he writes. He says, dear friends, and he's writing to those who are under heavy persecution. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. But sometimes our sufferings don't even feel like they're suffering for Christ. It's just suffering and there's no explanation for it. It's devoid of reason. and Those are the hardest ones for us. A freak accident happens on the highway. Nobody is at fault, but someone you love is permanently disabled or the medical tests come back, terminal cancer, and you're baffled because you've eaten right and you've avoided bad habits and you've tried to get plenty of exercise and here you are with terminal cancer. It just doesn't make sense. And then you add to that the list of global disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and the like, and the list gets longer. And then as if to add insult to injury, you watch somebody who you know doesn't care at all about following God, who doesn't really care about being a person of character or maintaining integrity, and you watch their life, and it just seems like everything goes well for them. You know, they, they just keep getting richer, things just keep going better for them, and here you are, trying to live as God wants you to live, and the bottom falls out of your life, and you just don't get it. 
Well, others in the Bible didn't get it either, if it's any comfort. David didn't write all the Psalms. I believe he collected all the Psalms, but there were a few other Psalm writers. Uh, Asaph was one of those, and Asaph writes in Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. You get what Asaph is saying? He says, I know God is good. He said, but I almost lost my religion over this one. I'm looking at the wicked and I'm seeing them prosper and I think, this isn't right. He could feel his foot slipping out. And you may feel the same way. That may be why you're asking the question, God, why do you let bad things happen? Now, I think we need to go back to the Bible and check on a few truth claims to understand part of this dilemma. Here are what we, here's what we learn from the Bible about certain truth claims. Here's the first one. God is perfectly good. That's, the Bible claims that God is perfectly good. The Bible also claims God is all-powerful. And the Bible also claims evil exists. It is real. Now, how do we reconcile those three statements? How can we see the horrible, sometimes evil things in this world and still believe in a good, loving, and all-powerful God? So people have tried to figure out ways. How do I deal with that? How do I work that around? Some people simply then just choose to dismiss the idea of God altogether. Uh, we would call that atheism. There is no God. Now, I'm always amused when an atheist asks the question, why does God let bad things happen? It's a little illogical for an atheist to ask that kind of a question because to ask the question presupposes that there is a God, but I've heard him ask it before. And they're bothered by that. They shouldn't be bothered by that. It's just, it's just, you see, if you take God out of the equation, if you remove this divine designer, if you take God the creator out and we are a godless universe, a random universe, then there can be no good or evil. Here's the problem when you take God out of the universe, you also take evil out of the universe. There is no immutable standard for determining what is good and evil. There are only preferences. You've got a preference. I've got a preference. All, all of us have got preferences. And, and I have no right to say that your preference is, is, is wrong and you don't have any right to say my preference is wrong. Murder may not be on the top of my preference list, but hey, if it's on the top of your preference list, I mean, you know, what, who am I to say? And, and, and it sounds bizarre, but that's exactly the conclusion that you come to. There is no right or wrong. There's only preferences. Now, folks, let me tell you. Do you remember the serial killer Ted Bundy? That's exactly his rationale for his killing spree. Right before his execution, he was interviewed, and this is what Ted Bundy said. He said, I learned that all moral judgments are value judgments and that all value judgments are subjective and that none can be proved to be either right or wrong and I discovered that to become truly free, truly unfettered, I had to become truly uninhibited. And he goes on to talk about the fact that to open himself up and be totally uninhibited, he gave no concern to the rights of others because there is no right or wrong. 
But how do you describe a man who rapes and murders over 30 women and girls? I call it evil. I don't know about you, but I call it evil. And if evil exists, then there is God in this world. As a matter of fact, it is this very argument that brought C.S. Lewis to a conviction about Christianity because C.S. Lewis was convinced there was evil, but he knew there could not be evil without the presence of God in this world. Now, some suggest that evil is a part of God's character. This is the heartbeat of new age. That God is everything, and so part of God is wonderful light, and part of God is, well, darkness and evil. It's where we get the, may the force be with you kind of thing. That's the good side, but there was also the dark side to the force. That's new age. Some suggest that God is good, but that God is not all-powerful. That's how you get around this. You know, God, there's certain things God can't do. Oh, boy, but if that's true, folks, hope is destroyed. If God is not all-powerful, how can I look to tomorrow with any anticipation of hope and assurance? Because God may not be able to handle my problems. God may not be able to conquer death. God may not be able to provide everlasting life. And some suggest that God is all-powerful, but he's not always good. Now, most of us don't say it so bluntly like that, but that's kind of what we mean when we ask the question, well, if God really loved me, I wouldn't be going through this experience right now. And that's basically saying, God isn't really all that good, is he? Now, I don't know about you all, but all of that leaves me feeling incredibly empty as an explanation for how do we deal with the pain and the suffering and the tragedy that's in this world. Now, here's what I can tell you that I believe. I do not believe that God orchestrates life's tragedies. I believe that he is the father of lights and that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift as the New Testament tells us. Pain, injustice, and disease, even death itself, is ultimately the result of sin at work in this old world. And unfortunately, sometimes the innocent suffer as a result of the power of sin. What's more, God has never promised to providentially intervene and protect us from every bad thing. You cannot find it in the scriptures that God says, I will save you from everything. And while we are quick to ask, God, why did you let this happen to me? How often have you ever asked this question, which we ought to ask? Lord, how many times have you intervened in my life to spare me the tragedies? You see, the problem with that question is that we, we, we can't find an answer for that because I'm convinced that God has intervened numerous times in our life to spare us deep problems and, pro and sin sinful conditions and, and issues in our life that would be tragic and sorrowful. And, and we can't know that because when he does intervene, life just goes on like normal, so we don't know he's intervened. But I think one of these days when we get home to heaven, God's going to unroll the picture of our life, and he's going to say, here, 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 I intervened, and you didn't experience something that would have just wiped you out. Isn't that interesting to think about, that God may have intervened hundreds of times in your life already to spare you. And we get hung up on the few times when we suffer with the pain. Life here is so limited. We live day by day 
not being able to see beyond the moment. We make plans and we hold to certain assumptions about what's going to happen, okay, in the near future. We've, we're thinking ahead. You're thinking ahead right now. Uh, most of you, if not all of you, are anticipating living through this sermon, aren't you? Sure. Uh, and most of you are thinking about where you're going to go out to eat or what you're going to have for Sunday dinner. You're probably going to go home and watch the game on TV. Uh, and you're going to relax this evening. You're going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to say to somebody on your way out of here, see you next Sunday. And yet, can any one of you tell me what's going to happen for sure in the next 60 seconds? Can any of you guarantee that for me? Not a one of us knows. We live in the moment. That's all the farther we can see. We can anticipate, we can plan, but we cannot see any farther than now. Only God knows what the future is. Of all the driving conditions, a dense fog is the most draining on me, especially on a dark night. It's a strain on the eyes, it's a strain on the mind as you try to figure out what's just up ahead. In a dense fog, the headlight beam is swallowed up. Every muscle in your body is tense. You're looking just beyond the hood of your car because you just never know when something is going to pop up there and you hardly have time to react. You grip the steering wheel tightly. Your foot is just poised to hit the brake instantly. And the only thing that keeps you going is that white line on the right-hand side of the road. That line that you really never pay attention to in the good days becomes your lifeline when you can't see beyond the hood of your car. Now, what God has revealed to us in his word is like the white line on the side of the road on a foggy night. It's not enough to have a clear view of everything coming down the road, but it will keep you on course. It'll keep you on the blacktop. You ever been on the back roads of Indiana where they don't have those white lines on a dark, foggy night? I'm telling you, that is scary. I mean, you're trying to fight to make sure you don't go over the center, and you're trying to fight to make sure you don't end up in the ditch on the other side. It's unnerving when you don't have that white line on the side of the road, and that's what it's like to navigate life without the aid of God's principles and precepts. It's like driving the back roads of Indiana with no white line on a foggy night. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now when we read that, we miss some of that today because when we think about a, <coughs> excuse me, a lamp or a light to our path, we, we think of our mag lights or we think of our LED lights. We hit the switch and boy, it'll cast a beam several feet or yards in front of us. You can look up into the trees. If you're out in the forest, you can see what's up in the trees. I mean, we don't have any problem with a mag light making our way. That's not what David's talking about. At that day and time, they didn't have mag lights or LED lights or powerful flashlights. They had little lamps. You know what a clay lamp looked like in, in, in um, uh, David's day, the psalmist's day, even Jesus' day? It looked like that. It would fit in the palm of your hand. It had one tiny wick that came out of the front hole, and you would light that wick, and it would give you about the same amount of light as you'd get from an average or small-sized candle. Now imagine being outside on a path on a dark night and all you've got is that lamp. There's not enough to cast a, a light down the path, but there is enough light to see one step in front of you at a time. One step in front of you at a time. You see, God's word may not give you every answer that you want, but it will shed enough light to keep you going step by step by step by step. 
God's word is that life-saving white line on the road's outer edge in a dense fog. So what does this light teach us about tough times? Well, really quickly, here are a few things that we learn about going through tough times. Number one is happiness is never guaranteed. I like being happy. I enjoy laughing. If you've got a good joke after the service, I'm all ears. I want to hear about it because I love to laugh. Our culture is big on happiness. Don't, don't you love to be happy? Don't you love to laugh? Sure, it's just who we are. Commercial advertising sells happiness. They don't sell products, they sell happiness. If you want to be happy, you'll wear our line of clothes, you'll eat at our restaurants, you'll walk in our shoes, you'll put on our makeup, you'll drive our vehicles, you'll read our books, you'll fly on our airline, you'll vacation on our island. We're selling happiness. So much so that we've come to the conclusion that happiness is a right. But I'm here to tell you it's not a right. God has never guaranteed happiness. I think God is pleased when you're happy, just as parents are pleased when their children are happy. I'm happy when my kids and and grandkids are happy. But happiness as a goal in life, or worse, as an excuse for sinful behavior, is far from a godly virtue. Now, what do I mean as an excuse? Sometimes I'll hear somebody say, you know, I'm just not happy in this relationship. I'm just not happy in this marriage. And I know God wants me to be happy. So I'm going to get out of this marriage and I'm going to go with someone else. That's not God's plan. It's not the goal. Happiness can be a byproduct of living your life for God, but it's never the excuse to do what God has not called us to do or certainly has forbidden us to do. Some days are not happy days. God has not challenged us, therefore, to become happy. He's called us to be holy. God's concern is that we become who we need to be because God knows that when we are who he wants us to be, happiness will follow, but it's not guaranteed. Now, if you're a parent this morning, you ought to get that. Let me ask you a question. If your teenager stumbles in three hours past curfew but claims to be really happy, are are you going to respond, oh, oh, you're happy. Oh, I'm so glad you're happy. Well, then it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just glad you're happy. No. I suspect you'll respond something more like this. Well, so you're feeling happy, are you? Well, you might want to hang on to that memory, fella, because you aren't going to feel that happiness for a long time to come. (laughs) Now, that's what we do as parents, because we're more concerned about behavior than being happy. So is our Heavenly Father. He's called us to be holy, not happy. And holiness is not a synonym to unhappiness. Holiness is just being separated from the things of this world that will harm us and being committed to the things of God that will help us. And I'm here to tell you, following God's pattern is the quickest way to be happy. It's not guaranteed, though. There will be unhappy days. Here's something else. Being religious won't make you exempt from tough times. Are you serious? I thought if I was really religious, if I was really good... I thought if I went to church often, if I didn't sleep too often through the sermon, I thought bad things wouldn't happen to me. Somehow, in our 21st century minds, we've concluded that if we live right, if we keep the Ten Commandments, if we treat treat our co-workers with kindness, if we love our families, if we don't kick the family dog, then everything will go good in our lives. 
hearts. Goodness is not, however, a deterrent to tragedy. There was not a more religious, good man on, all, on the face of the earth than, than Job. And yet Job suffered greatly. And Job asked why he was suffering and never got an answer from God. God, God does not promise an answer. And if that didn't work for you, just remember that uh, when Jesus prayed in the garden that there might be some other way other than the cross, God had to answer that prayer. No, there is no other way. And I'm so glad God said no. That must have been the hardest no that God ever gave to a prayer. It's when his son asked. Now, folks, if Job and if Jesus, who was perfect, suffered, do you expect less for us? Here's something else. The world is just what Jesus promised it would be and predicted it would be. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Pick up the daily paper or turn on the news and the words verify what the Savior said over and over again. Jesus never promised we'd be exempt from tough times. Evil is not the creation of God. God is love, the New Testament tells us, and he created us to receive his love and to reciprocate or return his love. However, the ability to love always entails the ability to not love. Did you get that? Love without choice is no love at all. God could have made us puppets, but he didn't. Real love, true love, cannot be forced. Norman Geisler, whose books I have recommended to you before, makes this really startling, uncomfortable observation. Quote, since God is love, he cannot force himself on anyone against their will. Forced love is not love, it is rape. Love must work persuasively, but not coercively. Wow. God created us as free beings, which means we have the capacity to choose good or evil. God evidently created the angelic beings with that same freedom because Lucifer rebelled with part of heaven and has become the arch enemy here in this world laying before us the temptation. And we have that choice to choose good or evil. But real love demands a choice to be real love. And sometimes we've had this conclusion, well, God, you know, it is all these natural disasters that happen that are the biggest problem. No, it's not. The biggest problems, the biggest suffering, the biggest pain comes from the wickedness of, and cruelty of human beings. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza writes, in the past 100 years or so, the most powerful atheistic regimes have wiped out people in astronomical numbers. If you take only the top three, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, they have, in a single century, murdered more than 100 million people. No natural disasters can even come close to the cruelty of human beings apart from God. God will judge evil someday. At his appointed time, there will be a day of reckoning, but he did not create evil. And God himself is not immune to suffering God understands your pain because of what he endured. 
What's more, he can bring good out of the darkest of moments, for out of the darkness of the tomb came the hope of life in Christ. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, God may not be the source of the bad, but he can take the bad and bring good out of it. Philip Yancey said, Suffering can never ultimately be meaningless because God himself has shared it. God will never waste your pain. So here's some real quick lessons I'll leave you with this morning. Here's the first one. Your present suffering can help you prepare and endure for future tough times. Don't stop learning just because you're hurting. Pain is not terminal. Pain is not eternal. Tough times are temporary. Learn what God wants you to learn in the midst of the pain. Here's something else. Your personal pain can produce a sense of empathy for others who suffer. I'm telling you, when you're going through something difficult, one of the most wonderful gifts is for somebody to come along, put their arm around your shoulder and said, I've been where you've been. I've felt what you felt. I've experienced what you're going through. And you will get through this. I think that's one of the reasons why God brought us together as a family, the church. In Galatians 6.2, it says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's a big mistake to isolate yourself from the body of Christ when you're going through tough times. There have been a lot of things I've been through in my life that I don't ever want to go through again, but boy, have they given me a sense of understanding and empathy. And God has used those moments to minister to others in times and will do the same with you if you allow him. Now, let me, can I add this word of caution? When you're working with somebody or you're talking to somebody or you're praying with somebody or you're encouraging somebody who's going through a tough time and they're frustrated and they're angry with God, just let them vent and you use your ears, not your mouth, to respond. Listen, because they're speaking out of their hurt and their pain. Don't say something like this. Well, you know, God wanted your dad more than you needed him here and so he took him home to heaven. I cringe every time I hear somebody say something like that. And I think God does too. God doesn't work that way. Leave the platitudes alone. Just encourage somebody. You'll get through this. God will help you get through this. Time doesn't heal all wounds, but God in time will heal your wounds. Your trials can help you keep your priorities straight. Tough times always remind me what's really important. When everything's going good, you can just get so distracted by everything. But when, when things really hurt, or you get your priorities straight real quick. And then use your difficult moments to appreciate God's daily blessings. When everything is good, we have a tendency to take life for granted. But suffering has a way of making us much more observant. Ask someone who has been near death if they hear the birds singing differently or how they appreciate a beautiful day or what it means to have a good friend come and visit. Here, folks, is the bottom line for me. When I go through tough times, I have two choices. I can either go through those tough times with God, or I can go through those tough times giving up on God. That's the only two choices I have. Go with God, give up on God. And if I give up on the idea of God in my brokenness and my sorrow, what do I have left? Who do I have left? Absolutely nothing. 
And so I choose rather to hang on to God with the idea that I cannot know the ins and outs of his sovereign ways. But if he loves me as he says he loves me, then someday, and maybe not in my lifetime, but someday all of the pieces will come together and our lives will make sense. Right now, I only see half of the picture. God sees the other half. And it's only when God puts the pieces together will I see the whole image complete. And so I'm only looking at part of the picture and I trust him with the rest of the picture. And so when I cannot see in the dense fog, I'm going to be following the line. I'm going to let the light of his word take me step by step by step. Because only God can take all of life's experiences and cause them to make sense. Apart from him, nothing makes sense. Do you know him this morning as Lord and Savior of your life? If you don't, I worry how you're going to face tomorrow because tomorrow the bottom may fall out and you'll need him more than anything or anyone else.